Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Rick Boddy. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Dan Horner. And today we're going to cover some really big news in the COVID-19 field. You'll have maybe seen very recently the publication of a press release from the recovery trial, which is a really big randomised controlled trial, platform trial, supposedly the largest in the world with over 10,000 participants to date. And they've just released some early results from one of the arms, which is about low-dose dexamethasone for treating patients with COVID-19. And the big headline is that here we've got a treatment that can actually reduce mortality for patients with COVID-19. But it's been causing some controversy. So we're going to talk through this trial, recognise that we're going to give our opinions on this. They're certainly by no means the only opinions in the field. There's going to be a huge range of different opinions on this. We're going to give you our take on what we think about the uh, results that have been released so far. Simon, you've been a lead investigator for the recovery trial in Manchester. I wonder if you could talk us through the trial and tell us about the design. Yeah, so the recovery trial is a really interesting concept. Um, It actually grew out of something called the ASAP trial, which is a trial set up to look at steroids in pandemic flu. Um, But then when COVID-19 came along, it was repurposed to look at COVID-19 and the name changed to recovery. And in fact, it became a little bit more complex in that it originally started to look at four different therapies. So dexamethasone, hydrochloroquine, azithromycin, and um, Kaletra, which is a, an anti-HIV drug. It's actually changed again since then. It's now also looking at convalescent plasma and it's looking at tocilizumab. So it's really quite a complex design. And what's interesting about it is that it was set up in advance. So as soon as COVID hit, we were able to start recruiting patients really within a matter of weeks. And that's why there's now over 11,500 patients in the trial across 175 UK NHS hospitals. And that is just incredible. I mean, there's nothing like this out in the world. And we've been messing around with small, piddly little studies of 100 patients. And now we've got data from a large number of patients. And what's interesting about this, we'll probably talk a little bit more about it later, is this platform design. So we're able to test several drugs at the same time. And we can actually bring them in and out of the trial as new therapies become available, or when we've got enough data to know whether a therapy works or it doesn't. So that's that's roughly what the, the recovery trial functions as. To date, we've already had a result on hydroxychloroquine, which suggested that there was no benefit. But the really controversial one is the fact that they've released early data to say that dexamethasone is an effective treatment. In the trial, there's 11,500 patients in the trial. Of those, 2,104 have had dexamethasone and been followed up for 28 days with an outcome of whether you live or die. And that's been compared against 4,321 controls. And of course, the other missing data in that sort of numbers is the patients who got randomized to other treatments, which we don't yet know about. What they've said is that there is a significant benefit in patients who are either ventilated or require oxygen support. And that's interesting, but controversial. The only data that we have on this are from the press release. There's no manuscript associated with this at the moment. So the data that we have available are relatively sparse. What we can see is that dexamethasone reduced deaths by a third in ventilated patients. So that gives you a rate ratio of 0.65 with confidence intervals that don't span one. So a significant p-value of p equals 0.0003. 
and it reduced death by a fifth in other patients receiving oxygen. So that's a rate ratio of 0.8. And again, that reached statistical significance. But there was no benefit in patients who didn't require respiratory support. So the rate ratio for those patients was 1.22 and the 95% confidence intervals crossed one. So it's not a significant result. The authors concluded that based on those results, the number needed to treat to prevent one death in ventilated patients is eight and the number needed to treat to prevent one death in patients who require oxygen is 25. That sounds really impressive, but it has raised a few alarm bells. Dan, what did you make of this? There's a lot of good news in this press report, isn't there, that we might have a pharmacological option, which we're all comfortable and familiar with, that might significantly reduce morbidity or mortality from a, a very difficult and challenging disease. And I suppose the news is extra good in the sense that this drug is cheap, it's widely available, and it does have some face validity to it. You know, the, the protocol goes into some detail about why this drug was chosen as an arm within the adaptive trial design. And, and in addition, steroids have been trialed in various other phenotypes of ARDS over the last 10, 20 years. There's a, a nice summary from Josh Farkas that we can link to, I think, describing some of the previous research on steroids in ARDS. Lots of positives about this, and it's good news, but I suppose the concerns have arisen in my mind and, and in the mind of others because of the way that these preliminary initial findings have been reported and the difficult situation in which they leave us. So we could go back, of course, to the trial protocol, because every good, robust trial should have a protocol. Arguably, they should all be published so that people can scrutinise what the investigators set out to do uh, and bear that in mind when they publish their reports. I'm sure you've seen that the primary outcome for this trial, registered on IAS-CTRN, talks about death in hospitalised patients within 28 days of randomization. So the primary outcome didn't actually speak to patients who were receiving mechanical ventilation or, or those receiving oxygen. And those features aren't really recognised in the secondary outcome measures either. The secondary outcome measures talk about length of stay and they talk about progressions in mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy, cardiac arrhythmias. They don't necessarily talk about the findings that are reported today. So it feels a little bit like we're being presented with a subgroup analysis. Was that the feeling that the two of you got or have I misread that, do you think? It's just that lack of clarity, isn't it? So the first thing is to say is that the entry criteria for this was just any patient who was admitted to hospital. So you're right, it's not an ICU trial, which is quite important. I think in the subgroup analysis, it was pre-specified, I think, in the stats plan that they would look at ventilated patients differently to non-ventilated patients. That differentiation was there. It's still unclear to me, and I've looked at the study protocol and I've looked at the stats plan again, still not exactly clear to me what they meant by respiratory support because it's just a bit unclear here about whether they're talking about patients who require oxygen is respiratory support or whether it's more than that. I think it's people who just require oxygen but then what were the other patients who didn't need oxygen doing in hospital was a question I would like to ask and I don't know that because I don't have any other data to go on. In fact I don't even know how many patients there are in each group. I've thought about whether I can back calculate the number of patients from the, the proportions that are given to us but I don't know are there hundreds of ventilated patients in this trial or are there thousands? Well, there can't be thousands, but do you know what I mean? Is it tens? Is it hundreds? Is it? I just don't know. And that makes it really difficult for me to get a feel of who these patients are and what actually happened to them. And that brings us on, I think, to you know the overarching concerns that are being expressed in a variety of ways, uh, which is the fact that we just don't have access to perhaps the, the questions that we want, the totality of the data, do we? So it's hard for us to apply the usual 
critical appraisal processes that we would to this kind of work. Now, my understanding is that recovery and this this arm in particular was an open label arm. Is that right, Simon? Yeah, that's correct. All the arms in this trial are open and it's a very pragmatic trial. And so, yes, this was an open label trial. So the dexamethasone, um, we knew who was getting it and the same for all the other treatments there as well, actually. You know, we would usually apply fairly strict critical appraisal to a, a trial like this, wouldn't we, and say, well, if it was open label, then that might affect the, the care that those patients who received the drug were given. Now, of course, they've chosen a hard endpoint of mortality. So it's very difficult to argue that there's any subjectivity in that. But what you can, I think, discuss is, is that uh, open label interventions sometimes come with different clinical practice around them because clinicians are swayed by the fact that patients are receiving different treatments. And so they apply different levels of care. You know, th- that doesn't mean to say it happened in this trial, but these are kind of things that we will be talking about. And the fact that we don't have access to the data in any form, uh, preprint or, or manuscript, means that we can't really apply any critical appraisal to these findings. We just have to take a single paragraph at face value, which is immediately endorsed by the health secretary. And, you know, we have to, I suppose, believe the science behind that and think about changing our practice. But it's always critical that we really think hard about changing practice, isn't it? Uh, As you've spoken about before, Simon. What follows on from this is that without understanding of the adverse event rate for this drug, without understanding the complications, without understanding the baseline demographics of the patients who receive the drug or placebo, it's a little bit hard to translate these findings to the patient in front of you. What do you say when people ask the questions of, does this drug have any side effects? How is it tolerated in this trial? Are you sure it's the thing I should be receiving, doctor? You know, what do we say when people ask about the side effects? We have got generic side effects within dexamethasone in terms of its licensing for other indications, but can we apply those in, in this situation? It's very difficult to say. So I, for one, am not really sure what I'm going to be saying to the next patient who asks me if they should be having dexamethasone. I don't know. Have you two given that any thought? Yeah, I think this really takes us to uncharted territory, to be honest, because we've we've been here before in the pandemic with hydroxychloroquine, of course, and then more recently with remdesivir. With hydroxychloroquine, we saw an observational, non-randomised trial suggesting that there might be some benefit. And on the back of that, we had some quite high-profile advocates of hydroxychloroquine therapy And then later, the evidence caught up and seemed to show no benefit. In fact, the recovery trial itself has shown no benefit with hydroxychloroquine. Then we have remdesivir, and the ACTT1 trial showed a reduction in the time to recovery. But there was incomplete follow-up in the uh, cohort. About a quarter of the patients that were included in the uh, trial weren't included in the final analysis because they rushed so much to complete the analysis that they hadn't actually even completed follow-up for them. That, of course, led to marketing authorization for remdesivir, and it led to remdesivir being considered as a standard of care. That then halted the remaining trials for remdesivir and meant that it was very difficult not to give remdesivir to patients. However, it's just possible that if we had data on all of the patients in that trial, or if we had data from the randomized control trials that have completed now, but haven't yet published, that actually the findings wouldn't be corroborated. So we may have been premature in jumping to those conclusions. And I think the same applies here. I have to say, I really, really congratulate the authors for designing and delivering this incredible trial. The recovery trial is an absolute scientific feat. But at the moment, I just want some more information before I can be sure about what I'm reading. Because when we see online the statistical analysis plan and note that they had a number of pre-specified subgroups, for their patients' level of respiratory uh, support, the time since illness onset, the age, the sex, the ethnicity of the patients. They only published 
results from one of those subgroups, which is based on the level of respiratory support. I just feel like we need more data. Right now, I do agree that it's imperative that we we should know these results at the earliest possible opportunity. Knowing these results now is very difficult to not give the treatment to patients who are ventilated with COVID-19. But I just feel maybe we should not get quite so excited until we've seen the full report and it's been peer-reviewed. Just to give you an example, we don't know how many people actually completed the trial. So we don't know how, whether or not people actually received dexamethasone as prescribed or whether they got missed out, whether they were unable to complete the course. Our intensivists were concerned about the glycemic control of these patients. Was it bad? Was it good? Were there certain groups that had a major problem? Were there certain groups that could not tolerate this medication? We just simply don't know. And quite frankly, I can't see a reason why we can't know, because that data must be known. And if you're prepared to release the results, then surely you can help the clinicians, you can help patients by shows the data. I agree, Simon. I think this moves us away from personalised medicine, doesn't it? And precision medicine. And it's a very broad summary of a risk ratio for specific subgroups, which puts clinicians in a, in a difficult position because it, it makes it hard to have the discussion, makes it hard to do anything really, other than to say everyone should get dexamethasone as soon as they need a whiff of oxygen or if they're heading towards any kind of enhanced respiratory support. And that's difficult, you know, that's moving us away from tailoring therapies. The other thing uh, that this moves us away from is high quality reporting of randomised controlled trials. And there's been huge amounts of work on that over the last 20 years. You know, we have consort statements, for consolidated reporting standards. You know, we've had lots of articles highlighting the benefits of adaptive trial designs, but trying to focus on the essential reporting items that, that people need to produce when they are revealing preliminary results and when they're presenting results for peer review. This kind of press release publication process, it moves us away from that work, doesn't it? And it puts us back into a situation where we can't tailor therapy, where as soon as we get a positive result, you know, it's cascaded. It moves us away from transparency. And I, I worry about that. That does set, of course, an interesting precedent as well, because if we accept that the recovery trial can do it, I have no doubt this is a trial that's been conducted in an exemplary way with great oversight. But if they can do this and they can publish preliminary results without any detail, without peer review, and we change practice on the basis of that, then why can't someone else? We've seen already the controversy surrounding Surgisphere, for example, with the hydroxychloroquine debate and questions over the accuracy of the data that were published, which led to quite important changes in practice. Hydroxychloroquine was immediately withdrawn from practice on the basis of what may have been furious or misleading findings based on at least inaccurate or dirty data. Uh, so if one team can do it, why can't others? And if others can do it, then it does leave us a little vulnerable to drawing the wrong conclusions based on spurious data. I think we need to be clear that none of us are suggesting that anything dodgy has happened in the recovery trial. It's an incredibly well-designed trial. As I said, it was developed from something which has been running for years and having recruited locally, I'm pretty certain everywhere else is similar. Actually, this is a very easy trial to do, to conduct. It's not something which I think is going to have dodgy data in it at all, in any way, shape or form. Mm. But that just makes me even more frustrated because I want the data to shine on the back of a high quality, transparent methodology. And I genuinely believe it's there. So my plea is just show us the data because without it, there'll be skepticism. And what we don't need, if we genuinely do have 
and I believe we do, a therapy which makes a difference is what we don't want is scepticism, which delays its adoption into practice, if indeed, as I believe, it is effective. But it's a belief and I can't, you know, I shouldn't change practice on a feeling. I should change it on data. Before you started talking about beliefs, I was going to say exactly the same thing. So I, uh, I think this is a hugely powerful trial. I think it's a fantastic undertaking. I think, as you said before, Rick, the, the chief investigators should be commended. I should all the participating units and, of course, the patients. And the NHR has been a big success story, hasn't it, in terms of mobilizing research at pace and scale. But my worry now is that the manner of presentation of these preliminary findings adds fuel to the sceptical fire. And it's very hard to quench that. You know, once people are suspicious of the manner in which knowledge is disseminated, it becomes increasingly hard to convince them that there has been due diligence. Is it a shame? I suppose in my eyes, that's almost how I feel about it, really. But that doesn't undermine in any way what the um, chief investigators have done. And I would echo the plea to show us the data and fingers crossed that there is a lengthy publication with lots of appendices overloading us with data coming in the next week or two. So I think the heartening thing is that we all agree very much on this issue. We all agree that this is a fantastic trial, that delivering it was a terrific achievement. We all think that the data are going to be trustworthy. We all believe that uh, these likely, these findings are likely to be true and will change practice. We're just really, really thirsty for more data to be able to judge for ourselves the subgroups that we might want to treat, that we might not want to treat, and to do a proper critical appraisal. I hope that paper will come soon. I guess we should leave on a, a final note of whether we should, we will or won't treat that next patient with COVID-19 with low-dose dexamethasone, as Dan alluded to before. So, Dan, will you be treating your next patient? Will I be treating my next patient? Uh... I will factor this press release into my balance of risks and benefits when I'm looking at my next patient with COVID-19. And I will certainly think very hard about prescribing a 10-day course of dexamethasone for patients who've been declining. Uh, I would suspect that I'll have been beaten to it by clinicians starting dexamethasone as soon as anyone gets a bit of oxygen on the wards. That will be an interesting discussion for me to have then about continuing the course and about um, whether any side effects occur. If so, what to do then? That's a, a really woolly answer to a very direct yes or no question, isn't it? So apologies for that, Rick. Well, perhaps some more data will help. Simon, what would you do? I think on the basis of not just this, but as as Dan alluded to, and we've read from Josh Farkas, there's a there's a broader pathophysiological argument for this. I think on the balance of probabilities, my default position will be yes. But if any doubt, I'm just going to phone Dan as the intensivist and ask him. <laughs> so I'm going to give you my opinion I'm, and I'm going to get off the fence on this one. I'm going to say that I would give my next patients with severe COVID-19 dexamethasone on the basis of this, because on the balance of probability, given what I know, it's likely that it's going to have some level of benefit and unlikely to cause harm. However, that doesn't make me feel any easier about the fact that we haven't had enough data published to make a robust critical appraisal. In fact, it makes me uncomfortable. So I really want the data to help me out in the resource room when I next get a patient and I'm considering making that uncomfortable decision. With desperately keen to support this but please give us the tools to do so and on that note we'll see you later take care have fun bye everyone